0: let's begin welcome back to the rv on today's episode we are speaking with andrea carter brown andrea is from new york and lives in california oh it's so beautiful (laughs) she is an author poet and editor her latest book is september 12th It's a full-length poetry collection for the 20th anniversary of 9-11. So, my dear Andrea, welcome to The Relatable Voice. Thank you, Lucia. I'm incredibly pleased to be with you
1: on your podcast. You do such good work, and you're
0: helping keep the world sane. Thank you, too. Thank you for your time, for your kindness, and... You are originally from New York. Is that correct? Yes, I have to correct that a
1: little bit. I was born in New Jersey, but I grew up within about 15 miles of New York City. And like most people, I couldn't wait to get to New York City. And I did as soon as I went to college. So and that I lived my whole life really in New York City I mean I traveled a lot and uh, sometimes I was away for months or once I was away for a year but I always came back to Manhattan where I lived and um, I only live in California because after 911 after working hard to try to resume our lives that we loved We learned, we discovered that it was going to be impossible, that New York had changed, we had changed. Uh, Of course, the neighborhood had been completely changed and, and the world has changed. And after three years, we looked at each other one morning and we said, is this working for you? This is me and my husband. And he said that to me, and I looked at him and I said, nope. And we packed up all our belongings, and we moved to Southern California, partly because we could both work here, partly because we love it, Mm -hmm. partly because it was about as far as you could get away from New York City, and as different a place as it is from New York city. So, and here we've been since late 2004 and we have built a new life here. Mm -hmm. Um, I will always feel like a New Yorker. I think anybody who lives in New York for a period of time leaves part of themselves there. And, um, the move was very hard for my husband who was actually born in New York city. Did not live his whole life there but lived his whole adult life there and um, it felt like a betrayal to him to give up on New York and leave but for physical health reasons and uh, mental health reasons, we knew that we could not stay there and have a reasonable life, so we chose life and I believe it was
0: the best thing you did at that time.
1: Yes, I don't I don't think either of us regrets the decision to leave New York and to come to California, but a big change in your life, it takes some getting used to. I was 50, I'm giving myself away when we came out here. Um, a middle-aged move is tougher because your contemporaries are all more or less settled in their lives. There's less room for you in their lives. You don't have children to connect you to other people, which is a sort of automatic social network. You know, I had lived in the Northeast, New Jersey, New York, the greens of the Northeast, were my greens. Well, mm-hmm. there's lots of greens in California, but they are not the same greens. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, anyway, but California has been good to me. I'm pretty sure that if we had not left New York and moved to a place where I could feel safe and a place with natural beauty, I probably would never have finished this book. Mm-hmm. who's to say obviously I worked on it for almost 20 years before it was published okay. um, which everybody who knew me thought I was just crazy and I did other books during this time I published two other poetry collections basically having nothing to do with 9-11 I worked I taught poetry I worked as an editor. I did the usual grab bag of things that many writers do Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I didn't want to be fixed in an academic position. That was not right for me, but to write September 12th, as I wanted it to be, required me to be in that world again and to go there was very difficult. As you can imagine, I can um I guess your readers probably your your listeners probably don't know that I lived in an apartment, a block from the World Trade Center's, a block as the crow flies. I was in my apartment that morning, getting ready to go to work, and um I only knew that the first plane had flown into the North Tower. Because my sister saw it in on television, and called me to ask if I was okay. She saw it on Good Morning America, of all things, wow. almost contemporary with the you know the uh-huh. the moment it happened. And she called me at about nine o'clock, and I had no idea. I said, "I am fine. Why are you asking?" Wow! You didn't hear anything. Nothing isn't that bizarre but i didn't so and um but i ran to the other end of the room which was the living room and i i looked out the window and i could see the north tower on fire already with flames coming out of win- broken windows huge black smoke coming out of the windows uh, I saw debris falling from it, so it was very quickly uh, the building was uh, compromised by the explosions, mm-hmm. and I think my hearing shut down. To tell you the truth, my my eyesight became very acute. For example, I could see people at windows. Who then jumped. I could see people, and these would be high windows, you know, not that close, but I could see them. I could see, I remember I saw a a man in a, a you know in an office, you know, these were all office spaces, taking his desk chair, you know, with wheels on it and mm-hmm. arms, lifting it up. Those things are not light, and throwing it at the window to break because, of course, the the glass was tempered to withstand the pressures of the height of the building and the weather and all that stuff. So I saw him repeatedly hurl this chair at this glass, which would not break. But somewhere inside of me, I thought, well, he would rather flee what was behind him, which must have been the fire and the internal explosions. And, you know, the, the decision that people made, I don't I, I don't usually talk about this, actually, but the decision that people made that they would rather jump to their deaths because it was certain death than stay in the building and die however, that would happen, was, I have to say, I think they were very brave. Uh, I don't think jumping to your death was an easy death either. I saw the most poignant image of this brief brief window that I was looking up at these windows before I fled. I saw at a blown out window, I saw two young women Um, crawl onto the ledge, you know, the windowsill, mm-hmm. let their legs hang out over the outside of the building. So they were sitting there like you would sit on a park bench, shoulder to shoulder, because the alcove where the window was, was narrow. Shoulder to shoulder, they looked at each other. They held hands, they took each other's hand, and they jumped together. Wow. So when I say that it took traveling across the country to a yard with with orange trees, which are now laden with oranges, to feel whole enough to bear witness to this. I haven't been to the memorial no no i I probably will eventually I've heard various things about it, but I think memorials are for people who weren't as close as I was or people like me. It must be very difficult for the families of the people who died with their names mm-hmm. in the wall and mm-hmm. Because, yes, it's a commemoration. Yes, the names are there. However, it's an absence. Exactly. It is. So, anyway, I, I wanted to, what can I say? Maybe I'm a masochist. I've been accused of that, too, in writing this project. But I wanted my story to become part of the record partly because it was a different story than many other peoples who were survivors like me. Because I'm a poet, I wrote it as poetry.
0: Andrea, your book is entitled September 12. Why September 12? I did not want the book to be limited in its subject
1: to 9-11. I wanted it to be focused more on 9-11, certainly the record of what I experienced that day. But that happens in the first third of the book. And the rest of the book looks forward. Okay, and it takes me through after, Hmm? after what yeah, what I call the aftermath, but the short term aftermath. For example, there's a sequence of poems which is the night of September 11th, September 12th, September 13th, September 14th. The 15th is the first day that we were allowed back into our apartment to get passports and medications. And we were accompanied by a soldier wearing an automatic weapon. Wow, I didn't know about it. Yeah, if you live there and, and if the people, Some people who had pets left their pets there. So they were allowed to go back and get their pets, of course, but they already knew how long it would be before those residential units within about a mile in every direction would be accessible. And it was six months before we moved back so that but that morning. That the 15th of September, when we went back, uh, we had to walk there because there was no, there were no vehicles. There was no public transportation. Um, We walked there with backpacks and uh, we took what we could stuff in our backpacks. We were allowed 10 minutes in the apartment. And I mean, our apartment was only had dust in it. Well, that dust, I write about that dust because that dust is not just simply dust, no. but other apartments nearby had building parts. They found parts of the jets in apartments, huh. so it could have been a lot worse, but I looked at the apartment, which was, it looked like the ruins of, after a volcano, you know, the, the 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 table where I was reading the newspaper and drinking my coffee when my sister called that morning was still there. The, the mug of coffee was half full. Of course, it had a big mold on it. The paper was open with dust all over it. I looked at that apartment and I can say this now, but even at the time I said, I don't want to live here anymore. But nonetheless, we tried, which is what a lot of people do. You know, you, it takes a, when you when your life is pulled out from under you or you have to flee it to save your life as the, all those hundreds of thousands of people are doing in Ukraine now you leave everything behind i mean you take what you think is essential but even those decisions seem a little strange in retrospect and people i think are very attached to their belongings or and this is something that janelle talked about in the last podcast about how we we attach a great deal of importance to certain belongings and The idea that we could lose them, which you can, seems unthinkable. Well, I, there was very little in that apartment that I cared about. I wanted my laptop because all my work was on it. So of course I thought I didn't know if it would work because of the dust. I didn't know if, and of course, back in those days, I wasn't very good about backing up. So I lived for, You know, that interim time, thinking that the writing that I had done for over 20 years could be gone. And, you know, how do you go on with your life? How do you make a new life?
0: Yeah. And, you know, I'm so happy that you made it safe because that dust is very toxic and many people had developed diseases?
1: Well, I'm one of them, but I'm alive. So I did develop cancer, which is one of the diseases because there's, you know, microscopic heavy metals from all of the computer machinery and everything that just melted down there. But I have very bad asthma and it's specifically related to my exposure to the dust. Now, compared to other people, my dust exposure was minor, really. So I can only, well, I was there that morning. I was within the cloud when the first building came down. I wasn't immediately close, but, and I was exposed to it when we went back that first time. We had to skirt Ground Zero with and the fires were still burning and there was dust all over everything, so I was exposed with then, and then I had to go back to the apartment. Occasionally, there was a federal government agency called FEMA, which had to, um, in order for us to get grant money, they had to inspect the apartment. The Red Cross was there. The building was required to clean the space. Well, in typical landlord fashion, they didn't do a very good job. So then we had to pay our own uh, air inspectors to see what was. So that went on for months. I was so sick within a month with the chest stuff that I was not allowed to go there. So then my husband started going and it's no secret, he got sick too. So.
0: Ohio, ready
1: for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the US, more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when
0: we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.
1: But we are alive and there are there's this organization funded by the government, thank goodness, which monitors the health of those of us who were in downtown Manhattan that day. Once a year, I get a questionnaire. Every year, the questionnaire changes a little bit. Uh, They add new kinds of cancer. They add other diseases. Uh, And, you know, it's something like 70,000 people in the registry And I suspect a lot of other people just didn't even bother, but we felt that the more information that they can gather from this experience, the more science can be applied to it, that it was worth it. Every year when the questionnaires come in, my husband fills his out the day it comes in, mine sits on my computer and they send me reminder. After reminder after reminder, and I still have to sort of get the courage up to ask to answer these multiple choice questions, Um, even though other than the, the asthma is finally under control under certain circumstances, it can get triggered, but It's still, it's never out of control.
0: We start thinking, why? Why? Why do we have to have this kind of situation in our lives? And that's something that I ask myself sometimes, and I don't have an answer.
1: Well, at least you're asking the question, which is a good, healthy thing. One of the things that happened to me after 9-11, well, I'm a writer for me. Mm -hmm. I write what's in my mind, what fascinates me. I write for many reasons, but I write to communicate Mm -hmm. and I write, and that writing is a, um, call it an act of faith that language can bring us together, that I don't want to say we're all the same because there are fundamental differences across cultures, but we are all human beings with a genetic load in us, which goes back a long time. And so there is commonality. Um, and I write partly to explore that commonality. However, um, what happened on 9 11 really made me question my belief in that made me question that language and communication could overcome our tendencies toward violence toward tribalism toward racism and i don't say that in a pollyannish way um i think for a long time We didn't adequately respect the ways people are different. Uh, And we were. Well, a lot of people still are frightened by those differences. What a shame. What richness. Um, But when those planes were sabotaged and flown by human beings into a an iconic tower with this sole express purpose. Well, there were many, but the main express purpose was to kill lives, to kill other human beings.
0: Out of hate, I thought, how can this be? And what is the feedback you are getting from your readers?
1: I've heard from readers that they read the, these poems and then they can't read anymore. And then they come back to it and they read those poems so there were some narrative structures that are not common in poetry because most a lot there is poetry which is narrative but there isn't that much of it which is what i would call sustained narrative and everybody who decides to do it has to reinvent the wheel of how to tell that story Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so anyway and that's you know that's a challenge that's an intellectual puzzle partly um although you can't do it without respecting the material i don't know you're too young but as as you get older you sort of think of your life in periods you know i know psychologists have a this era that era that era but the lived life to the person who lived it Mm -hmm. has periods. And they, they don't correspond exactly to decades, but they're chunks. So this is the year of the years of independence and getting edu- education. These are the years of settling down. Of course, settling down is, is one of those great uh, misnomers, because yeah. as you know from what you told me earlier, uh, your life has been far from settled, too. Yes. So and I think that's becoming more common, but for people of my generation, we expect the generation before us was extremely settled. My father did what he did his whole life. Mm-hmm. He didn't it didn't occur to him to change careers. Of course, his life was the big upheaval of his life was World War II. So his life was also touched by violence and war. Um, and worldwide, and it's something I think about a lot and I'm writing about now, mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, at the time that I, he was alive, he's gone now, I hadn't gone through 9-11. I hadn't written about it. It didn't occur to me that in my middle years that I would go through something comparable to what he went through. And that he would never know about it because mm. I, I don't believe in that he's up there looking down on me. I feel his presence in my life and I feel very attached to my memory of him, but it's, I don't think he, I'm glad he wasn't around for nine yeah. 11. I'm glad he didn't have to worry about me going through it. Uh, he mm. loved New York city. He would have been heartbroken to know that this happened. And of course he, as a survivor of World War II, would have understood what I was going through the way when I look at refugees or immigrants or survivors of forest fires or that I connect with in my own little way with their losses. Mm -hmm. So it's a sad form of continuity across human experience. It is.
0: And unfortunately, we are seeing it happening again.
1: Unbelievable. It is. So I'm heartened by the degree to which Europe in particular, but all over the world, people are saying and demonstrating for stability, for peace, for not rupturing a world in which we can focus on what I think are more important things being productive, being helping each other, yeah. having a fruitful life
0: instead of just dealing with survival issues. And Andrea, this is a conversation. It's like I'm talking to a friend that I know for so many years. I
1: feel the same way about you. you. You've certainly allowed me to go on and on and to say things that I don't normally say.
0: Andrea, how can we find you? And of course, September 12th online.
1: I have a website, which is my name. Andrea carter uh, you can learn more about the book and me on that and there's a contact page and those emails come directly to me. Uh, I am on Facebook as mm-hmm. Andrea Carter Brown. I am on Twitter as Andrea Brown poet and Instagram as Andrea Brown poet no caps. And what else? Oh, and you can buy the book through Amazon, which I believe ships
0: in Europe even. It ships. Thank you so, so, so much. Thank you. I will be always happy to drive to sunny California to talk (laughs) with you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I feel like we could sit ourselves
0: down and we'd start with coffee and we'd
1: end with wine, and who knows how many hours later it would be, because I would like to hear more about, you know, the life that you've made, which brought you to doing this
0: podcast. I'll be glad to. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening, and remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does. Until next time.